Hey, man. Thank you, Brittany. That's really hot. Um, welcome. Welcome to King's Cross Church. Good morning, King's Cross Church. If you are visiting with us this morning, um, my name's Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm sorry. I'm out of it with how loud that is. My wife told me I wasn't there. My son sang the national anthem at a game before, and apparently when you're on a field and you say something really loud, it echoes back. And so he ended up singing a verse twice, but he doesn't get embarrassed by anything I would. Um, so maybe God will make me more like him this morning. Um, as my wife, Brittany, read, we're in the book of Micah today at King's Cross Church. We like to preach straight through books of the Bible. So if you've been visiting for us for a while or with us for a while, you've heard Pastor Clint preach through the book of Exodus. Pastor Hez preached through the book of Philippians. And the rest of the pastors are preaching through the minor prophets. And in the minor prophets, we are literally preaching straight through those books because we're doing one book per Sunday, which is what we will do today. Um, and so if you've attended for a while or if you from this moment attend for a few weeks straight, then you will get to hear from the full counsel of Scripture. You're hearing from, from a historical narrative in the Old Testament. You're hearing from the minor prophets what God has to say about what's going on with his people. And you are hearing from a New Testament letter from Paul to a church. You are getting the full counsel of Scripture, and I think that is wonderful. And so today we're going to get into the book of Micah to hear what God has to say to us. Again, Micah is one of the minor prophets. In seven chapters, we have three prophecies. They're all distinct, but they're all similar. They all follow the same pattern of declaring doom and then declaring hope. In this book, God speaks through the prophet Micah to his people in the split kingdoms of Judah and Israel. And we're going to hear what he has for them and us today. We we chose the songs this morning intentionally. Hopefully you noticed a theme of God's faithfulness and how he has restored his people and how we sing of his faithfulness. Because I'm going to tell you in just a minute, you may not like him a whole lot. Because um, we're going to talk for about 30 minutes about how badly he hates sin and what he must do to sin because he is a holy God. But remember what we just sang. And remember that we are gathered here together knowing that he has preserved his people. And we know of his faithfulness. Let's sing. Let's pray. <laughs> we might sing in a minute. Just wait. God, be with us this morning. Show us your truth. Kill any pride that would get in the way of us seeing our sin in relation to your holiness. Remind us of your faithfulness and love. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Chapter 1 starts with Micah explaining who he is, who he's speaking to, on whose authority he is speaking, and why he is speaking. So if you would, will you turn to Micah 1? We're going to read a lot of scripture together today, church. Amen. So I'd like you to just keep your Bible open to Micah. It's only seven chapters. We'll, we'll find our way through it. So look with me at chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morasheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it. And let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? 
And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? In his introduction, he says, I'm Micah. God gave me a word to let Samaria and Jerusalem, or Samaria was the capital of Judah. Um, Jerusalem was the capital of Israel. So effectively, he's, he's pointing these individual things out, but he's speaking to the entire kingdom of Judah and Israel. And he's saying, Micah's saying, know that God sees you and what you are doing and that God is coming. Now, as Christians, we should be excited that God sees us and that he plans to come again one day. But this message from Micah does not start out as exciting news for this audience. Hear how he describes God coming. He will tread the high places. Mountains will melt. Valleys will split open. God is coming and he is bringing destruction with him. Why? Because of the sins of his people. Micah has set the tone. Surely he had their attention. Surely he should have our attention. When something has angered God this much, we need to know what that thing was. Let's look at what Micah has for us. First, we see sin and separation. So we're effectively looking into God's courtroom, and Micah has just started his opening arguments. So Jonathan, who just sang for us, our worship leader and I, were talking the other day about our mutual love for crime dramas. Do we have any crime drama fans? With us, thank you. I'm not talking about true crime. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about crime dramas, fiction that is fun to watch. And we were talking about how Law and Order SVU seems to get a bad rap. It seems like people either love or hate Law and Order SVU. And we've both had people slander SVU to our faces. And I know one thing for sure. None of you would slander SVU to Ice-T's face. That I know. And if you don't get that joke, you're either under 30 or you didn't grow up listening to rap music. Um, but one thing that Jonathan and I both appreciate about SVU is how it doesn't just follow the normal path of a crime drama where, you know, terrible crime happens, they work through it. Oh, it's not who we thought it was. Oh, we've got the suspect credits. No, the DA's office is involved, and we get to see that case go to trial. And they don't just catch their suspect, they take him to court. And so that tense moment when the trial starts is where we find ourselves in the book of Micah right now. Effectively, Micah is the prosecutor. He's made his introduction. He spends the rest of chapter 1 laying the foundation for his arguments. And then in chapter 2, he gets specific with the indictments or the charges against the people. Now, Micah has a lot of defendants in this case. This was a major case, and he starts his charges with the wealthy and the powerful or the economical leaders of the Israelites. So if you'll look with me at chapter, one, or chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And then down in verse 8. But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses. From their young children you take away my splendor forever. The economical leaders of the people were using their wealth and power not to bless their people, but to steal property and homes and to take away the livelihood of fellow Jews. More than that, they were attacking innocent passers-by and evicting women from their homes. Now, these actions are bad enough on their own, but they're even worse when we look back on God's law, the instructions God had given them for how they were to live together. 
God had given a chosen land to a chosen people to use for his glory. He tells his people in Leviticus 25, Therefore you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them, and then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit, and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. God says if they would obey his laws, he would provide for them all that they would ever need. And what are some of these laws? Again, in verse 17, you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God, for I am the Lord your God. And then down in verse 35, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and a sojourner, and he shall live with you. Take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. You shall not lend him your money at interest, nor give him your food for profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Now Micah's audience would have known the stories of God's faithfulness. Their God rescued them from slavery in Egypt. He protected them from the Egyptian army. He fed them when they were hungry. He gave them water when they were thirsty. And he brought them into the promised land. But now, instead of living in grateful humility and peace, in the abundance of what God had given them, they wanted more, more, more. We know this is wrong. God tells us over and over in the Old and New Testament, we see in our text today that it's wrong. And in the book of James, we see religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion is loving God, being distinct from the world and caring for the least of these. But the leaders in Israel were stealing from women and making orphans out of children with no inheritance. And we can wrap our heads around the bad guys being the bad guys and the good guys being the good guys. That makes sense. But when we see a traitor, when someone we thought was supposed to be good betrays those that don't deserve it, when someone we thought was on our side stabs us in the back, it awakens our sense of justice. Doesn't it awaken your sense of justice? Don't you feel this in your gut that a wrong has happened? Doesn't this injustice done by the rich to their brothers and sisters anger you? Don't you feel it in the pits of your stomach? And guess what, church? It gets worse. Micah then turns his attention to the judicial officials. In chapter 3, verse 1, he says, And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. Is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people, Flay their skin from off them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Now, Micah uses graphic language here, obviously it's graphic, to condemn the judges or the magistrates of Israel. They weren't really cannibals, it's just that their injustices were so grievous, he wanted to show what harm that they were doing with their actions. Micah is saying, your actions are literally destroying your people. Those that were chosen to know, interpret, and uphold the law justly to decide cases fairly were allowing the abuse and exploitation of God's people. Now, let me just remind you, God's people are their people. These are Jews hurting fellow Jews. Do you remember in the New Testament how hated the tax collectors were? The Romans would employ Jews to collect Roman taxes from their fellow Jews, and they were known to overcharge their fellow Jews so they could pocket the profit. The Romans were clearly evil, but the Jews reserved a special hate for their fellow Jews who exploited them in the name of the Romans. It hurts worse when your own people stab you in the back. Like the tax collectors, these judges, because of their wicked hearts, because they hated good and loved evil, chose wealth 
over their brothers and sisters. And it gets worse. In response to Micah's condemnation of the wealthy and powerful, some other prophets or prophets came up to speak to Micah, to set him straight. Chapter 2, verse 6, the prophets say to Micah, Do not preach. And then they continue, One should not preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. Now, so far we have been let down by the wealthy. We've been let down by the judicial officials. But surely, surely those who claim to be prophets, to speak for God himself, would point everyone back in the right direction. But I told you it gets worse. They say that everything's fine, that God is not mad at what you are doing. We will not be disgraced for our actions. In chapter 3, verse 5, God speaks to these prophets. These prophets lead my people astray. They cry peace when they have something to eat, but they declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. These prophets prophesy for those who can pay them and against those who can't or won't pay them. Instead of condemning the greed and abuse of the powerful, the prophets encouraged it. They got kickbacks from those in power, so they made false prophecies, pushing further down those who were being abused. Some might say they were for-profit prophets. Is that what it says? And church, just like that joke, it gets worse. In chapter 3, Micah kind of sums up the arguments against these leaders. Look with me at verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, who detest justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. I think that one stings enough just reading it, but let's talk about it. Micah now brings a new group into focus in this passage. He again says that economical and judicial leaders are crooked, and he says the prophets will say anything for money. But then he says that the priests teach for a price. Those chosen by God to teach his law, to explain what justice, what right is to the people, were blinded by a love for money. Now, I don't have time today to get into for-profit pastors, those who would exploit the pulpit of Christ's church by spouting nonsense and using the name of God to rob well-meaning people. Let me just say the words of a poet friend of mine, the priests Micah spoke of and false teachers today who exploit people in the name of Jesus have tendencies that Jesus would call disgusting, false prophets with no oversight and theology busted. So to summarize, they were greedy and wicked men in every position of power in this culture. Now imagine with me, imagine that you are a middle-class person in Israel. You own a home, you own a piece of land. It might be tight month to month, but you get by. Then a wealthy landowner sends his thugs to let you know that your land is now his. You can stay on it and work it, but the profits will go to him. Your children will get no inheritance. Your family will probably starve. Now obviously this will not stand. So you go to the magistrate to start legal proceedings against the wealthy man. And the magistrate writes down what you say and says to check back with them in a few days. They'll let you know what to do. So you show up to his office in a few days. You notice a fresh new car parked outside. You walk into the window to speak to him. He's got a fresh new outfit on. You ask about your case and he's like, yeah, I, I just don't think there's, there's anything we can do. 
So frustrated, you go to your priest. You go to the local prophets, those who effectively speak for God in this sort of theocratic government. Surely they will set everything straight, but you get the same story from them. Abuse, exploitation, punching down. These words should not describe the people of God. So where does that leave us? What happens to a society in which all those who were tasked with upholding God's justice and truth turn from God? It gets worse. In the third and final prophecy, Micah comes to speak against the entire community of people. In chapter 7, we read that Micah looks around and says in verse 1, I'll give you a second. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned. There is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth, and there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. The prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desire of his soul. Thus they weave it together. The best of them is like a briar, the most upright of them a thorn hedge. The day of your watchman, of your punishment has come. Now their confusion is at hand. Put no trust in a neighbor, have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. A society with wicked social and religious leaders, with no justice and no hope, will necessarily descend into darkness. Another way of saying this is, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. That as we overlook injustice, it grows and multiplies. Now, injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere is a good quote, and that proves that it's not mine. It is Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s. I was in Washington, D.C. last week and was able to go to the Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial with a friend of mine. And as we were walking in, I said, I bet there will be something here for my Sunday sermon. And there was. Micah wrote this around 700 B.C. Dr. King said his quote in 1963. People are being exploited right now. Injustice is occurring right now. I don't mean like the global like things are happening. I mean as we speak. Injustices are occurring. God's word may be an ancient text, but it's relevant right this moment. May we cherish his word. May we hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against God. And so what is the result of all of this sin that Micah has spent this time pointing out? Separation. Separation from their land, their people, and their God. We'll see in the next point that Micah's audience is defeated by their enemies. Their land will be taken away. They will be take, killed or taken away. They're split apart from those relationally that they have injured or wounded by their actions. And then they're split apart by their people because of the consequences of war. And then we see that God seems to turn his back on them. Christian, I assume based on cultural norms that these people, the leaders, the judges, the priests, and the prophets were religious people. They certainly would have known the stories of God's faithfulness from ages past. They could look at how they had been successful financially and in battle. These were affluent societies at this time. They were doing really well. It's amazing how a life of ease tends to lead towards a life of sin. They could look at how they had enjoyed recent comfort and success. 
They could look at their own attendance at religious gatherings and faithfulness in offering sacrifices. And based on those things, they could say, I am right with God. But you don't get to live ugly and have true confidence. One source I read preparing for today said, you don't get to go through the spiritual motions without practicing spiritual devotion. If you find yourself, Christian, going through the motions, but disconnected from God and disconnected from Christian community, come back. Separation from God and his people here we see is a punishment. Why would you choose it? If you are choosing to be separated, repent and return. Charles Spurgeon says, if we ourselves feel that we are backsliding, let us turn to the Spirit of God, crying, give me life. Spurgeon says the Spirit of God alone can make us alive and strengthen things that are ready to die. Non-Christian, maybe you are wary of the Christian faith because you yourself have experienced injustice. Maybe you have been exploited by someone claiming to be a Christian. Maybe you have seen pastors getting rich in the name of Jesus, proclaiming favor while never confessing sin. Hear me, I am sorry. That is not the Christianity of the Bible. And in the next few minutes, I hope you'll see that a love for God should lead people not to seek power and riches, not, as Pastor Clint says, to be puffed up celebrities, but to be humble servants. So we saw sin and separation. Next, we will see punishment and promise. God sent Micah to lay out the charges against the elders of the people and ultimately against all of the people. He doesn't stop at letting them know they've done wrong. He lets them know what the punishment for their sins will be. God, in our text, makes the complaint, and then he acts as the judge and jury. He makes the complaint because he is the real victim here. Although the main complaints were about how the least and the last of his people were being treated, the real crime has been committed against God himself. His people had worshipped power, possessions, and security above their God. Now, we would not think that this is fair today for the victim to also be the judge, and it wouldn't be. Obviously, the victim would rule for themselves, or at least we know that we couldn't trust them to be impartial. But God is not like us. He is perfect. So his complaints are proper, and his rulings are just. And so the righteous judge makes a righteous judgment, and he punishes those that have sinned against him. So how does he punish he takes away the thing that gets between his people and himself. For the economical leaders who were stealing land and property, God says he will allow the Assyrians to take their property by force. The wealthy will have their land taken just as they had taken land away from the poor. In this punishment, we see that those that trusted in and abused their power would eventually be overpowered themselves. See, God teaches lessons with his punishments to the ones being punished and to the ones witnessing it, like us. So let's pay attention. The land that they stole by exploiting the poor would eventually be split among their enemies. And God says, as they were enslaved to their greed, they will now be literally enslaved. In chapter 2, verse 3, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, against this family I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks, and you shall not walk haughtily, for it will be a time of disaster. For the judicial officials who were abusing their power and committing injustice for their own gain, God says he will give them the most harsh judgment possible. He would remove his presence from them. Chapter 3, verse 4. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time. 
because they have made their deeds evil. Just like the judges turned their backs on justice and their people because they forgot about their God, he tells them he will now forget about them. And to the prophets who supported those who exploited God's people with their false prophecies, God says he will take away their visions, their source of power and notoriety. Look at verse 6 in chapter 3. Therefore it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. The lips that the prophets once used to abuse God's people and to profane his name, they will now cover in shame. And then finally, to all of Jerusalem, look at verse 12, still in chapter 3. God says, Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins, and the mountain of the house a wooded height. The city and the security that they were so proud of will be laid to waste. A holy God and sin do not mix. This is why when we sing, Holy, 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 though the darkness hide thee, though the eye of sinful man thy glory may not see, only thou art holy, there is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, and purity. This perfectly holy God and sin cannot mix. A holy God that sees darkness and sin, a holy God who is like none other, a holy God perfect in power and purity cannot allow sin to run rampant amongst his covenant people, and so he must punish. But we don't just sing about his perfect holiness. We say that he is holy, 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 merciful, and mighty. Our God is perfect in his justice and in his mercy. And so at the same time we see him calling out Israel for their sins and pronouncing punishment, we see him making promises to his people. You see, God had made a covenant with his people that the world would be blessed through them and by them for generations. So if God destroyed all of his people, his promise would be broken. At church, our God is no liar, and so our God makes a way. So what promises did he make? How did he balance punishment and promise? First, he says, he will preserve and restore a remnant. Now, there are multiple texts supporting this throughout Micah, but since I spent 20 minutes on the first point telling you how sinful they were, I'm going to just choose one excerpt that sums it up. So if you will look with me at chapter 4, and we'll start in verse 1. I'm going to read verse by verse and make a little commentary as we go. Chapter 4, verse 1. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and peoples shall flow to it. Now, one verse ago, in chapter 3, verse 12, we just read that the city and the hill they had trusted in was crushed by God. But when God restores, people will flock to the house of the Lord. We have been talking about condemnation and destruction, but God promises restoration and blessing. Verse 2. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. God had to purge those from his people that disregarded and denied his word and his law. But when God restores, people will seek out his words and his law. 
Verse 3, he shall judge between many peoples and shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. God had to punish the judges for injustice against his people. But when God is the judge, he will judge justly, not only for Jerusalem, but for all people. And when the perfect one judges, there will be no disputes. There will be no need for weapons because peace will abound. And it may sound far-fetched that there would be that amount of peace because it is. It is not possible in our little brains to understand this, and it is not possible for a man to accomplish this. It is something that is only possible for our great God. Verse 4, but they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now, it may not be appealing to you to sit under a vine or a fig tree, so you can read this, sit on your porch, or relax by the fire pit. When God is ruler and judge, you can hang out, and you don't have to look over your shoulder that you might be wronged at any moment. You don't have to worry that thugs may come and take your home or your land from you. And how can we trust this? Because the Lord of hosts has spoken it. Verse 6, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. There were other nations that existed and fought during Micah's time. Why don't we talk about them? Because the Lord God didn't promise to preserve a remnant of them. They have been wiped off the face of the earth. But he made a promise to preserve a remnant now. Now how, how do we know this will work? Didn't he do this before? Didn't we already go through this with Noah? Where God said, I will destroy everything, but I will preserve a remnant. Didn't it work out that time? No. We know that people messed it up. What about the Israelites after God rescued them from Egypt when he miraculously carried them through the Red Sea, when he saved them from the army, when he fed them, when he clothed them, when he gave them water, when he brought them to the promised land? Surely they got it right. No. What's different now? I will. Let's go to chapter 5. Verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. How will it work, church? It will work because God isn't relying on a man to do it. God will do it himself in the person of Jesus Christ. Only Christ could come born as a baby and yet be ancient of days. And we describe this when we sing, in the darkness we were waiting, without hope and without light. Surely I have made a case that God's people were without hope. Till from heaven you came running, there was mercy in your eyes. To fulfill the law and prophets, to a virgin came the word, from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt, ancient of days and yet a baby in a manger. To reveal the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost, 
to redeem the whole creation, you did not despise the cross. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the King of kings. We sing it and we believe it. The remnant had to believe by faith. Church, we get to believe by faith, but also by hindsight, because we know it to be true. Because guess what? It worked. How do I know this? Because you are here with me right now. The remnant survived, the shepherd came, and Jesus rules and reigns over his church in heaven right now. Christian, you have been chosen. You have been delivered, and you are a descendant of this remnant. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Brothers and sisters, remember this great salvation and live like a Christian. We'll talk more about that in a second. Non-Christian, you cannot save yourself from the guilt of your sin, but you do need to be saved from your sin. How can you be saved and join this remnant, this people of God? First, you must acknowledge your sin, like the sin that we talked about earlier, deserves justice, that it deserves punishment, and that someone has to pay an answer for it. This debt, like all debts, is either going to be paid by you or by someone willing to pay it for you. Now, here's the bad news. It's impossible for you or anyone that you know to pay this debt. But here's the good news, that this Jesus Christ, who we sing of and who I've been talking about, through his perfect life and his death on the cross, has taken the punishment and paid that debt for all of those who repent and believe in him. If you have any questions, please talk to one of the pastors here. Talk to a Christian friend, but repent and believe. All right, we can take a deep breath now. We've gotten through telling you how terrible they are and maybe a little bit how you are if you saw yourself in that story a little bit. Um, This has been a meaty sermon, um, but there's hope. There's a Savior greater than all the sin we talk about, amen? So the final thing that I need to cover is what life looks like as we live as the church that has grown from that remnant. I didn't know what to call this last part, so you can choose between promises fulfilled and people restored or loving God and loving people. God called his people in the Old Testament to be distinctly different than the surrounding world, and church, he places that same call on us. When asked what God wanted from his people, Micah replied in chapter 6, verse 8. This is probably on some of your coffee cups. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. God called his people to act justly, to treat one another with love and mercy, and to walk constantly with their God, humbly conforming to his will. And in case we think that this is an Old Testament thing and doesn't apply to us, Jesus, when asked what the greatest commandment was, replied, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So what do the people of God do? They love God and they love others. Pastor Tony Evans says, ultimately, acting justly fulfills the two greatest commandments given to us by Jesus, loving God and loving others. Christ says, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Both the content and the meaning of the law and the prophets were centered not only on one's relationship to God, but also on whether one was rightly related to one's neighbor. Thus, Jesus linked our attitude towards God, the spiritual, with our attitude towards others, the social. When asked, who is my neighbor, Jesus responded by telling the parable of the Good Samaritan, pointing out that your neighbor is the person whose needs you see and are able to meet. So what does it look like for you to live this God, this life of loving God and loving people? I have no idea for you. For me, I've got a pretty good idea. Um, I've got some ideas for me, but you're going to have to figure it out. You need to see who your neighbor is, identify it, and then love them. So I've got some general ideas. You can be generous with your time and with your money. You can give to the local church. You can invite people into your home. You can listen and look for people that are hurting and do what you can. You can also be on the lookout for some opportunities that Pastor Charlie will be pushing out and publishing to our website uh, in the coming months. That way you can find opportunities to practically care for widows, orphans, and the least of these. Now, some of you may already be scared away. You knew with Micah that there was a justice aspect to it. And then as soon as I mentioned Dr. King, you were like, I knew it. I knew Craig had gone woke. But that is not true. <laughs> I'm not trying to scare you away. I don't think I'm woke. Um, I'm not talking about what the world calls social justice at all. I'm talking about kingdom justice. I'm talking about what God's people do as the people of God. God's people see hurt, they see brokenness, and they move toward it. They remember the mercy and the grace that has been poured out abundantly on them, and they try to pour that out on others. And we're able to accomplish these lives of justice, of love, and mercy by relying on our relationship with God to provide by the power of the Holy Spirit the justice and steadfast love that He requires of us. So Christian, God calls us to love and serve Him. And often on this earth that will look like loving and serving others. Humble servants humbly serving because they have been humbly served by the King of Kings. Non-Christian, trusting God. Not in your good works, not in the good things that you have done, not in your service to others. Those can be good things, but they are not enough. Repent of your sins and join this remnant on God's great mission. King's Cross Church, our God is a faithful God. Who is a God like Him, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of His inheritance? He does not retain His anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. He pardons sin. He has compassion on his people, on his people. He is faithful and he will be faithful. Let us love and serve him and others together until he calls us home. Let's pray.